We're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm so excited to welcome the show, Caregiver Dave and Sandy. Dave, how, how are you? Doing? you? Good, good, awesome. You know, I always say, you know, I just keep going. It's we got uh, 15 days left, right, to the new year. Let's just keep um, going and just keep rolling. Some people have stopped. The media giant does not stop. And our guest today is Valerie June Hockett. She's a Grammy-nominated musician. Yay. Somebody to Love is her children's book. Valerie June, how are you? And thanks for stopping by. Doing great. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm so thrilled to talk to you. I'm okay. thrilled to talk to you. Did you always, always, when you were thinking about things, want to be a musician? Was that something you always wanted to do? Yeah, I always wanted to be a singer, and I never believed I could. And being a musician is a whole nother level that I had to really, really believe for. So both of them were things I wanted, little seeds that I had planted inside when I was a child, but um, I never thought that it was possible. So I had to kind of dream it up. <laughs> I had to dream it to, to, to achieve it, Dave. It's not true. No That's doubt. right. If you can't dream it, you can't see it. Right. Exactly. So, Dave, I'm going to let you ask a question, Valerie. Go ahead. Well, uh, you look like a children's author, so <laughs> uh, I, I can see how children would naturally be drawn to you. So you're a Grammy Award-nominated uh, singer, and you're a children's author. What came first? Did you have uh, a passion to write before you had a passion to sing? Yeah, well, I wanted to write. I think that writing did in some ways come first because – because, you know, you grow up in English class writing papers and doing things and reading literature. And I always yeah. thought, you know, how cool would it be when I grew up to be a writer? <laughs> but I also love music and I love songs. So in, once I did actually grow up and I was in my early teens, like 19, 20, 20 you know, all in that area. Um, and I was deciding what I would do with my life for a living. The song, then it switched and the songwriting came before the, the book writing and being an author so wow. um as a child it was the other way around and in reality it was the other way around so it, it changes your dreams change as you get older is it the lyrics you write or the melody or both both yes wow what a gift and then also yeah, i guess opening up for big bands like dave matthews and stuff like that that's gotta be oh, crazy wow. amazing awesome the coolest part about that is when you meet them and they're just so down to earth and normal to be such huge stars, you know, they're just normal and sweet and amazing people. People like him, I've opened for Nora Jones and Sturgill oh, Simpson wow. and Mavis Staples and different people. And they're all so, they've been great, really. What a blessed life. And that accent sounds like Nashville. Is that right? <laughs> A little more south than that, about two hours south of Nashville. Alabama? Not that far. Sometimes when people hear my accent, they say Texas. So that's way too Texas. far. Back it up, buddy. Yeah. Back it up. All, all, all of Neil's exes live in Texas. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, uh, <laughs> oh, that's okay. So let's go back to the question date now, uh, Valerie. When speaking about, uh, you know, the whole thought process of this children's book, how did you go about how long did it take you to do and like the whole passion behind this project? Well, the name of the book is Somebody to Love, the story of Valerie June's sweet little baby, Banjo Ailey. And a banjo Ailey is a mixture of a banjo and a ukulele. And I play both of those instruments. And wow. so for 
Christmas one year, a friend gave me this surprise, what I thought was a toy, and it was a banjolele. And so the banjolele is so small compared to guitars or cellos or basses or instruments like that. And I just thought, this is not real. But over time, I started to play it and it came to life for me as a musician. And I started writing songs on it and recording with it and traveling around the world and bringing it to my shows. And as I was sharing this with the students with the Turnaround Arts Program, which uh, Michelle Obama, when they were in the White House, started Turnaround Arts. And all of us would go into schools throughout the nation and share our art, anything from writing to music to being an actor, whoever she invited to the program would share their art. And I was sharing the story of the banjolele with students. And they, you know, the director of the program said, you should make that a kid's story. So it took me three or four years to turn it into a kid's story, but I finally did. Congratulations. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had a author and a singer on the show at the same time, children's author anyway. We lost your audio, Neil. Uh, I combined, I don't think we have, that's for sure. And so it is what it is. So now here's my question for you. What is your hope with children's book? What do you want people to get out of it the most? Well, it's not just for children because I think everyone has a dream, everyone. And one of the biggest dreamers who was on earth was Dr. King, who had the dream for oneness of humanity and that we'd all get along and bring us together. And so dreams are that important. They're that magical and they're that special for all of the planet, for everyone. And we live in times where dreaming is, if we need to reignite our imagination and we need to dream again. And so I want children to be inspired to dream, but I also want to awaken adults to what a dream is and that we all have them and we should believe in them, even when we feel like the weight of the world is keeping us from going for it. And so I go to schools and I see students who are anywhere from first grade to third grade. And I talk to them about dreams. I talk to them about goals. And I talk to them about bravery, courage, confidence, inspiration, and the reasons why sometimes dreams are challenging. But you have to have courage and you have to be brave and you have to persevere. And I talk to them about all of that, the struggles, the challenges, the good, the bad, and the ugly of what a dream is. Good for you, because dreams start in the minds of children. Have you come across any children who have never dreamed or didn't have any? I haven't. They're all full of dreams. Right. They've got dreams. They are. But then over the years, people quench their dreams. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, you're you're crazy. You know, and you've got to tell them to hang on to that dream. Exactly, because... I think if we if we can start watering those seeds and keeping that side of our minds protected and strong, then as we get older, when change needs to happen or things need to happen that could be positive in the world, we're more open to believing that they can come true, that it can get better. Don't let go of your dreams. Mm-hmm. totally don't give up on those dreams and the hope and what hope do you want to give people today the kids when you talk to them for thir- first third grade you said their dreams when you talk to the young people that are in first through third grade what do they tell you those kids because kids tell you a lot at that time and the the types of dreams they're looking for especially in our society today 
Well, many, oh, they're so brilliant. Many of, I have so many uh, students that ask questions during the Q&A that I can't even get to all of them <laughs> because there'll be like 300 students with 5,000 questions per student. <laughs> and so um, many of them want to be things like singers, dancers, um, writers, but also they want to do, be things like veterinarians, teachers, um, pathologists, doctors. I mean, I could not believe it when a second grade said he wanted to be a pathologist I was like what how do you know already or a librarian and part of the somebody's love book part of the proceeds go to be donated to children's literacy and so that's really important to me too as a dream because part of dreaming is that you can go open a book enter a whole new world and learn anything you want to you can also do that on YouTube but books are like meeting a new person from a different time period you know and so I think that inspiring them to read and inspiring them to dream, those are the two goals with the book. Wow. Good for you. Awesome. All right. So Dave, you have a caregiver Dave question, uh, so basically about who he is, uh, why he's called Dave the caregiver. Go ahead, Dave. <laughs> yeah, Valerie, uh, 25 years ago, I've been married for about 48 years, but halfway through my wife, has the stroke, don't know why it happened, don't, doctors don't know why, lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And we went through a terrible grieving period where she was angry and bitter and taking it out on me. And and I don't think I could do it, you know? So I we almost broke up, but then we hung in there and we got through it. I went to a support group. I learned how to put my oxygen mask on first. She started responding, coming around. Our love was rekindled. And now I'm Dave, the caregiver's caregiver, and we travel all over the world speaking on television and stages, just helping caregivers stay alive. 30% of them die before the loved ones do. And so now I'm putting on caregiver wellness retreats in Acapulco at this villa in this millionaire section that I have access to now. And it just helps caregivers to get away from their responsibilities and just relax and recharge your batteries. And it's a mastermind. It's coaching. And uh, that's where I'm going today, these days. Wow, that is incredible. Um, my mother was the caregiver for my father in his transition. And oh. he is so hard on the caregiver. So that it is a very, very special task. And also as my best friend who gave me the baby banjo lately passed from cancer, <laughs> there oh. were two or three other friends and we took care of her in her transition. So it's very difficult. So what you're offering in Acapulco, caregivers need it. I know. And, and they won't do it themselves. They need a loved one of the caregiver to say, you know what, you need to get away and I'm going to send you to Acapulco because don't worry about it. We'll take care of grandma and all of that stuff. Exactly. Well, definitely caregiverdave.com, right, Dave? That's where they need Care to go? Caregiverdave.com. All right. And Valerie, we can purchase a book anywhere. And is, do you have a website as well? People can check you out? I do. It's ValerieJune.com, and the book has a website of its own, which is SomebodyToLoveBook.com. That was created by the fabulous illustrator, Marcella Avalar. The colors wow. of the book are so bright and vivid, and that's because of Marcella. Let's see. I bet yellow is in there, too. <laughs> I know it. I'm going to show you a copy right now. Yay. Oh, it's ah, yellow so, writing. It looks so nice. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful, Fine gorgeous. I've never seen a ukulele banjo that is pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a real instrument, huh? So do you have some music at your website's music too for you for 
are you still performing? Are you traveling and performing too? Yes, the winter time is dedicated to the book, and then I'm going on tour throughout the rest of the year. So all that's on there. Oh, right. And uh, goals for music. Someday it's going to be a Grammy, right? You got a nomination. Someday it'll be a Grammy, right? We're Yeah, we're doing it. We're going <laughs> to do it. You never know. You never know. No, you shouldn't give up on your dreams. And that's the whole story, right? Don't give up on your dreams and keep, your dreams will come true. So exactly. I appreciate it. Thanks, you got to get nominated before you win, you know. Yeah, she already was nominated. So I know. So, so she's going to. You're halfway there. She's going yeah. to. All right. We appreciate it, Valerie. All right. Have a great day, guys. Thank you. you You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show, Media Giant Effect, and Growing Older with Enthusiasm with Dr. Ron Kaiser. Dr. Ron, how are you? It's amazing who we've been able to talk to so far in this community and how we're learning so much more about what's out there as your you know first center and some of the conversations you're having to end the year that you're going to be doing a lot of things to help the older adult community dr ron must feel great yeah it's really exciting especially given the fact that every day we get more and more people who enter our community uh reaching that age uh and so i know we're having a really special guest today to add to our lineup really excited about it all right, so introduce our guest. I'm, I'm excited to talk to him as well. Okay, well, our guest is Professor Andy Carl, and oh. uh, he is a multifaceted individual who's done great things uh, working in the older adult community, uh, both with active adults and, and people who are starting to slow down. So um, as I see your background, Andy. I see Georgetown University listed. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing most of the time? Sure. Thanks. And good morning to both of you. Uh, I've been a healthcare and senior living professional for 35 years, the last 25 years, really dedicated to senior living. Um, I've been a, 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 an operator. I was the chief operating officer for a provider that had over 100 senior living communities nationwide. I specialize in memory care design. We can certainly talk about that. There's a great, great need for it in this country and moving forward. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I've somehow managed to simultaneously spend 20 years in academia, where I created uh, both the first undergraduate program for senior living executives in the country at George Mason University, and then among the first graduate programs that I now teach at Georgetown University in senior living administration. So pretty much this is uh, working with older populations, aging populations, is all I've been doing for three decades. Did you think that was going to be you, right? <laughs> or not? not <laughs> right? Then you wake up one day and it's you. <laughs> <laughs> At least so, you're prepared. You're prepared. Yes. Go ahead. yes. So do you work with the gamut of senior living possibilities from active adult communities to dementia care? Or do you specialize yes. in something? No, I mean, senior living industry, as you know, has grown rapidly. I was actually fortunate to be one of the early people in it um, almost 30 years ago when there were only a handful of us. Uh, we all know each other. We've all watched and helped this industry grow. Uh, when I got into the field, you couldn't find assisted living in what was then called the yellow pages. Um, and, uh, you know, now, of course, everybody knows what assisted living is and senior living is. But, yeah, everything from active adult communities, independent living, assisted living, memory care, which, as I mentioned a minute ago, is becoming just vastly, vastly needed. 
And then these, what we call life plan communities, which are continuing care retirement communities that offer all of those services on one campus. And I you know, developed some new models as well. I do a lot of work actually with universities, a model I call university-based retirement communities, where I actually developed the model and worked with, uh, worked with a number of schools over the years to build um, senior living communities on or near college campuses. Wow. And the benefit of that is, are they able to be connected with the college or is it yes. the, the, the services of the, the medical facilities and so forth? So forth? You know, the, the, bo the bottom line is, is we've seen study after study that have shown that this next generation of retirees, baby boomers, and then some of the folks there even a little bit before, uh, they want three things. They want active, um, they want intellectually stimulating and they want intergenerational retirement environments. And at some point it occurred to me that they were describing a college campus. So they're also the most highly educated retirement demographic in history. A lot of them went to college. So uh, it's actually a really good fit. Um, our generation, the generation coming up, we don't want to retire to some sleepy retirement community on top of a mountain or out in the middle of nowhere, uh, rocking chair in the porch, right? Um, we want to stay active and involved. We went to college and um, we're very loyal to our alma mater. So these, uh, what I call UBRCs, university-based retirement communities, are actually also just rapidly exploding in popularity. So and the thing is that no one has found out so a lot of people enjoy what they do and they don't want to stop doing it. There's a, I, there's a client of mine, uh, Gary Sirak, wrote a book how to retire and not die and he basically probably could retire soon but he puts his schedule in his business and keeps doing his specific things but he, he lives it the way he wants it and he's prepared when he retires to what he does because some people don't want to just sit back and just let the days go and dr ron never is never going to retire i can tell that for sure with his his, his, his amazing thing at 85 years old at Andy, so what do, what do you think so like what is going to happen if you said the population as you told me, uh, 70% of the population is an older adult, starting to become older adults. How are how is the country going to adjust to this? How are they going well, to- Well, I mean, it, it really comes down, and again, we discuss this on our courses, so I'm trying to prepare my students to be executives in this and how to deal with it, but really it comes down to two big strategic questions. Uh, where are they going to live and how are we going to take care of them? You know, look, 65, is not old anymore, right? They have 80 is the new 60. That's actually pretty much true in a lot of ways. But when you get to 80, 85, you have issues. You have, you know, your world is different. And we have to figure out how we're going to accommodate, you know, these 80 million baby boomers who are already 10,000 of them are turning 75 every day. Even as we speak, 10,000 of them will turn 75 today. And then they're going to turn 80 and then they're going to turn 85. And we really need to start thinking now about how we're going to handle their housing and healthcare needs. Right, very good. Just generally, um, there's obviously a gamut of living possibilities from people like uh, myself and my wife who are living in the same kind of situation that we could have been in 25 years ago. We had a, a home at that point. We're in an apartment. Um, to you know, people who are our age who are need need much more care, and I guess one of the questions from from your perspective, uh, obviously, it sounds like keeping the mind active is is one of the things that you have uh, going for you that enables you to hopefully avoid memory care as long as possible. Uh, mm -hmm. What are the other things that you might suggest for older adults to be able to stay vital and relevant and uh, and age well? 
Well, I think it's really about just understanding that, you know, we haven't found a cure for aging yet. Um, so, you you know, knock on wood, the winning scenario is as you get to age. So first of all, if you make it to 80, 85, 90, you, I would point out you've won. Um, but with that comes, you know, other needs. And, um, and again, can you stay in your home? Are you safe living at home? And when I, you know, I talked to a lot of families for the last 30 years, it always comes down to three things. Can mom stay home? Well, three things. First and foremost, is she or he safe in the home? If they're not safe, you already have an answer. And that means physically safe, but also cognitively safe, right? If I mean, if they're, are they going to leave the stove on? Are they going to eat spoiled food? Are they going to forget to eat? Um, you know, you've got people over 65 average anywhere from seven to 12 medications a day pretty hard for anyone to manage. But if you have, you know, uh, um, any level of dementia, early stage or otherwise, can they safely manage their medications? Number one reason older adults are hospitalized due to illness in this country, medication errors. They screw up their meds. Um, so can they, can she manage her meds? And then, you know, that's, that's the cognitive safety, let alone, by the way, that's just inside the house. If they leave the house, can they drive a car safely? Are they going to wander? Are they going to become lost? 60% of people with dementia will wander and become lost in what we call a critical wandering incident, which means the police are called at least once during the progression of the disease. So a lot of things to think about in terms of safety cognitively and physically, you know, falls inside the home. Um, as, as you may know, I mean, one out of every three seniors over 65 fall each year, but it's one out of every two over 80 people don't, you never hear that one. You always hear the one out of three, but it's one out of every two, half the people over 80 will fall in their homes and falls are the number one cause of not only hospitalizations, but death due to injury in people over 80. So does their bathroom, you know, that's the number one place for falls. Do they have grab bars? Do they have a shower seat um, in their home? Um, you know, how's the lighting? People over 80 see things twice as dark as people who are 40. You know, are they going to trip over something in the home they didn't see? Are there loose rugs, throw rugs on the floor? Are there a lot of stairs? So you can see the list I'm going down. I've been going down with families for 30 years. A lot of things to think about when you reach when I say you reach the winning zone, uh, but the winning zone comes with a lot of other factors. And, and a lot of that is safety in your home. Secondly, let's say she is safe. Okay, next question to the families. Can she physically stay in the home? You know, what we call activities of daily living, bathing, dressing, grooming, those things become harder. Ambulation, getting around the house. Does she use a cane, a walker, a wheelchair? Um, have you modified the home with universal design? to make it easier to get around the home. Does she smell, when you visit, does she smell nice? Is her hair nice? Are her nails clipped? If it's your dad, is he shaved? Are their clothes clean? Are they doing the laundry? Can they maintain the home? These are called instrumental activities, home maintenance, paying the bills, cooking, cleaning, driving. Look at the list I'm going down with families so they say, well, she's safe at home. Okay, but is she physically, can she physically stay in that home? And then there's a third factor, and then we can move on to the next thing. This has just come up in the last few years, this whole issue of loneliness, which the World Health Organization has declared as an epidemic among older adults worldwide. And we never really thought about loneliness and its effect on your physical health um, and mental health, but we're now seeing you know, almost a 60% um, increase in risk to your physical health, almost a 50% increase to a risk of dementia, which you mentioned a minute ago, if you are lonely and not active, 
um, a 45% increase in the risk of death, all due to social isolation and loneliness. And by the way, more than 40% of seniors over the age of 65 report that they are lonely. So these three things I say to families, are they safe? Number one, okay. If they're safe, can they physically stay in the home? Okay, but even if they can physically stay there, how's their mental wellness? How's their social socialization? Because we now know um, the studies have shown it can be as dangerous to you as smoking or obesity to be lonely. So I go through this list with families and really have them sort this out. Now, if they decide there's a way for mom to stay at home, you can talk about physical accommodations, technologies. We can talk about that. Obviously, if none of this works, you're talking about senior living. Yeah. My hope is I want to, and I'll let you have next question, Dr. Kaiser. When we hit it off, Dr. Kaiser and I, in our first interview, when he came on my show, I talked to his, of re, he is about rejuvenating. This is his brand and his brand is amazing because the fact is you have to age, growing older with enthusiasm as well. I look at it like I want to reverse aging in ways by eat, being figuring out I'm turned 50 in January. And I wanna make sure I can, certain areas that I'm not hitting the mark, like weight, working out, specifically like all my health and vitals and try to reverse each year or two years to get younger what my health is. We all need to start to look at those things. I'm gonna let Dr. Ron answer that question first and then you, uh, Andy. Sure. Go ahead, Dr. Ron. What are your thoughts, especially because you're not on any medications. He's not on any meds. Now, but uh, yeah. I wasn't when I wrote the book, depending I, on the season. I would say Dr. Ron having, is definitely winning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Depending whether it's allergy season or not, I may, may <laughs> not be on it, but uh, basically, but I'm certainly not on the things that most people are on. I mean, my cholesterol, total cholesterol is 124 without a statin. So, you know, most people are on cholesterol or heart medication at, at this age. Uh, or blood pressure medication, rather. Um, but I, I was happy to hear you talk about, not happy, uh, maybe the wrong word, but to be talking about loneliness, because I, I have what I call the non-negotiable four things that I think people, if, if they have control over their lives, and if they're growing, then they want to be able to eat healthy, they want to be able to own their body through exercise, uh, sleep, meditation, so on, number two. Number three is keeping the mind active, and four is to be socially connected. And uh, I think, you know, that's a pretty good recipe for uh, for moving forward. Uh, of course, genetics play a role in lots of other things. Uh, and I, uh, without forgetting Neil's question, I hope that you'll also get into, I know that you've done a lot of work in uh, the area of memory care, and I think you've got a particular uh, facility that, that you're, you're really proud of. Uh, so while I hope uh, that it's only kind of an intellectual exercise and you can tell me about what happens inside of Medicare, uh, a uh, memory care facility rather than me experiencing it, what if somebody gets to that point, um, you know, where kids have made the decision or others, uh, physicians and so on, or they're the person themselves, that they really need need uh, memory care? Yeah. What, what happens there? I mean, we have in the common mind, there's there's a lot of stuff, nursing homes, uh, uh, even things that that probably aren't called that anymore, but uh, 
you know, rehab facilities, so on. What what happens when somebody goes into medic uh, memory care, and um, you know, is it a kind of a, a maintenance thing? Are there growth producing activities, or what what happens? Well, first of all, let, I mean, yeah, let's just skip right to this final scenario, right? Look, first of all, everybody on the screen is right. You should you do a lot of things to to you know delay the onset of a lot of these aging issues, but. We do know that empirically, um, you know, we have not found a cure for Alzheimer's, uh, which represents anywhere from 60 to 70 percent of all dementias. There are other kinds of dementias we have not found a cure for and are irreversible. And, you know, we know that empirically, you know, X percent of the population over 85, about one in five people over 80 and one in three over 90. And a lot of people are living to be 100 now. Um, have some form of dementia and, and short of a cure, which is unfortunately not imminent, um, that is not going to change. Now, the good news, if there is good news, is we have worked very hard for the last 30 years to invent um, facilities uh, for people who literally, as we just discussed, are not safe at home, cannot physically take care of themselves at home, are not able to, you know, because of their cognitive issues, really socially engage and without specialized programming. Um, but the the good news, if there is any, is we have developed some very, very extensive um, memory care communities just for these folks. And look, as, as Dr. Ron said a minute ago, they don't need a nursing home. All right. They're, they're not bedridden. In fact, unfortunately, their brains have broken before their bodies have. A lot of these folks with with forms of dementia cannot run me in the parking lot, frankly. Um, their issue is, is that they're not safe and they need specialized programming. So I this has been a passion of mine for 25 years and we've made great progress in, in an assisted living, which is not nursing homes but in an assisted living version of memory care, which we call memory care assisted living. Very, very specialized. I like to refer to it as our ICU. Um, very highly trained staff, highly trained programming. But the most important part is probably the physical environment. Um, and what's happened here is I've focused on that extensively taught courses in this, classes in this, presented on this, just worked as the consultant designer for a memory care renovation of a community called the Virginian um, here near me in Fairfax, Virginia. It's a 300 resident full continuum community, um, but they uh, was a 40 year old community needed renovation. The first thing that the ownership group did, this is Focus Healthcare Partners out of Chicago. To their credit, the first thing they said was, is we need better memory care. Uh, and they asked me to design a renovated and expanded memory care for them. We can talk a little bit more about it, but it, it did just win a national gold award two weeks ago uh, in the entire industry. Um, in, in, um, it's called Environments for Aging, which is an architectural and interior design competition. And this is called Shenandoah Memory Care. And it just won the gold award as the best uh, redesign and renovation in, in the country of any kind let alone memory care. It's a very, very special um, community. I'm happy to share links for you guys to post where folks can go on and see pictures of what we did and learn more about it. Um, but this is designed right down to the doorknobs. Uh, we can talk more about it if you want, but a very the kind of thing that represents the next generation of memory care in this country. I mean, I, I look at it in hearing this, and thank you for the great work, Andy. Now we're finding out with concussions and CTE that we can reverse some of that. 
So hopefully this happens for this community. I have one of the, one of my clients is the, one of the best doctors in this industry in concussions. And I've always told them, if you figure this all out, you need to go into this too, because if we can figure out a way to reverse Alzheimer's and reverse dementia and do all these different things through things, wouldn't that change a lot? And people will be living to hundred, 110, because once you have a specifically lose your mind in certain ways, it's over. That's it's going to be very difficult because you get into a nursing home. God forbid you ended up contracting COVID or something after that, and or you ended up falling. And then once you get bedridden, your your body deteriorates and you go, and that's what causes lots of death of older people. Yeah, but I mean, look, I could, to that point, you know, the, I was there's always something that's retained. You know, I've worked with thousands of people with Alzheimer's, even late, late stage where I've been told they can't even speak or do anything. And then, you know, I find out that they once played the piano and I walk them to a piano and they sit down and start playing and their family starts bursting into tears because they didn't know. But there's always something that's retained in there, even into the very, very late stages. There, uh, I'll tell you quickly, if I can, three things we did at Shenandoah that had never been done before. We created spaces just for that and spaces that would tap into their retained skills. So instead of just having a boring reception lounge, I created what I call a reminiscence lounge. When family members walk in, everything in there is from the from the 19, late 50s, early 60s, something called the reminiscence bump, which has been shown that our most powerful memories are formed basically in our late teens and through our 20s. So if those are the memories they retain, why would I have a boring lounge, a boring reception room. Why wouldn't I have a reception room where you step into it and you are in that time frame? And everything in there, there's no props in there. There's literally a dress model with a 60-year-old poodle skirt on it and saddle shoes um, that are not Halloween costumes, actual poodle skirt um, magazines. They're high school yearbooks, um, local, not, not, you know, posters of Elvis, local things um, they're actual high schools that they attended that we have their yearbooks on a shelf there where they can sit down with their with their parents and start flipping through their high school yearbooks. Those are memories that they retained exactly. And you, when you're talking to them in that moment, there's no dementia. They remember it exactly. And the, the pictures on the wall that they helped us pick out. Now, this is the Washington, D.C. area. But, you know photos of old Washington stores that don't exist anymore, ice cream, an ice cream shop uh, called Giffords that everybody remembers around here. It's been gone for decades, Um, but they will look at that picture of Giffords ice cream and go on for 15 minutes about it. That's just the the reception area. We've created a whole other room called the sensory lounge, which we can talk about, but instead of a boring lounge, um, it's tactile artwork, circadian lighting, live fish, aromatherapy. Um, You can have uh, Alexa play nature sounds. And then it's got this really cool tabletop hand motion video game that has, you just move your hands and play games um, and pop bubbles and things. 60 games designed by PhD gerontologists just for people with memory issues. That's just in this little sensory lounge. And then real quickly, instead of having a boring outdoor courtyard that no one uses, I call it the no exit exit. When they go outside, they almost always start thinking about how to get out. <laughs> um, so I created a, a, a two-themed, multi-themed, half of it's a 1960s backyard with a dog house and, and a picnic table and rocking chairs on the porch and an American flag and a white picket fence with a mailbox with mail in it. But they can go out that white picket fence, cross a faux street, 
and actually enter the other half of the courtyard, which is a park with a winding path and an ice cream cart and a Washington Post mailbox and benches and a little fake duck pond with fake ducks in it um, and a big picture of a carousel that's very famous around here. But look what I've done here. You know, instead yeah. of just stepping outside, they their exit-seeking behavior is addressed. They can leave the backyard, go out the fence, cross the street, go to the park, enjoy the park, come back home. They think they've exited. They've gone nowhere. They're very happy and they're engaged. So thank you for listening. But look at just those three areas, none of which have been done in that way anywhere else in our industry before, that can now be a model moving forward and tap into their retained memories and their retained skills. I need to connect you. And Dr. Ron, isn't that tremendous? I need to t connect you to Lisa Gibbons. I've had her on my show a few times. She's doing a tremendous work with Alzheimer's. And we'll definitely uh, chat with that. Dr. Ron, this is amazing, right? It's really, it's so it's fascinating. Fascinating and really look looking forward to learning more from you, Andy. I just have one question I, sure. I that's kind of gnawing in the back of my head. It all makes sense if they've got kids and they're alone. What happens to a spouse who does not have dementia if somebody needs this kind of care? It, it's, again, it, it, it's, it's hard, and I walk through the, the same three things. Look, is she safe? Okay. Can she take care of herself in the house? Okay. But I really have latched on recently because the studies are so powerful and this whole topic of loneliness. I think we under, I think we missed it, frankly, for decades. I think we underestimated it. Um, dramatically. We did not realize the health impacts. And I'll tell you a quick little example of how we know this is true. We had this terrible pandemic, right, where everybody was trapped in their homes for two years, including mostly seniors because they were terrified of coming out. They're at great risk. And we heard all these stories in the media about what was going on in nursing homes and congregate settings with seniors and, oh, they were so dangerous and all that. Well, first of all, the assisted living and senior living communities were not nearly on the level of nursing homes. Okay, but here's what was interesting. As soon as the vaccine came out, as soon as the vaccine came out, inquiries to senior living skyrocketed. So think about it. The places that they've been seeing on the news that were supposedly, you know, don't live there because everybody's going to get COVID, inquiries went through the roof. And what we found out was is more, more interest to these seniors um, than, than that, than what, you know, the risk of the COVID once the vaccine was there and removed that risk was their loneliness, was their loneliness, was maybe in some ways harming them in ways much more extensively than we thought. And in the, and since the vaccines have come out, almost all of the um, um, occupancy levels of senior living have gone back to where they were pre-COVID and continue to grow because Maybe one of the biggest lessons we learned is is it, it really is terrible to be a prisoner in your own home. But does the does the spouse move with them or? Is... Yes, typically, and one of the things with the full continuum communities, like the Virginian, has independent living, assisted living, right, memory care. Um, we have several couples at the Virginian where the husband lives in independent living, even, but the wife. Um, is in the memory care. In fact, one of my favorite couples there, that's their situation. And he dotes on her and visits with her every day. But he's very, very happy that she's in the part of the community that was designed just for her. Uh, and he loves it. And so does she, frankly. That's powerful. Dr. Ron, I, I want to know, Andy, do you have a website to people can find you? 
Um, I am a consultant. So in addition to Georgetown, um, they can find me at Georgetown, but I do consulting, uh, memory care design, lots of other UBRCs. Um, it's carlconsulting.com. C-A-R-L-E consulting.com. All right. Well, we appreciate it, Andy. This is such great information. Dr. Ron, you have one more question. That's fine. I, I think that ultimately at the end of the day, our money needs to be spent on this older adult population because Absolutely. of you talked about off the air, the amount of wealth that's in that. So that basically we want them to keep living, to be able to keep, mm -hmm. uh, keep the economy going and paying taxes. And then the other thing is we got to look at specifically enough how everyone can live longer. So we can continue to enjoy our lives so that the people that have suffered through this will never have to suffer again. And what the work you're doing, Andy, is tremendous. It really is. You commended of what you're doing. Thank you. All right, good, Dr. Ron. Another question for Andy? I am all questioned out for, for now. I really appreciate what, the time you spent with us and what you shared with us, Andy. I'm sure it's enlightening to lots of listeners as well as ourselves. All right. Well, thank, thank you both so much for your time and also for all you do. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. That was Growing Older Enthusiasm and a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Media Giant Effect. Take care, guys. We're back to Neil Haley Show and also the Caregiver Dave and the Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome from Caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, how are you? And, uh, you know, awesome. you've, been, you've been busy, 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 as always. You're the busiest person, always somewhere new, something new happening with Caregiver Dave, and that's what's so fun about him. But our guest today is Kelly Holland. She is the author of You Are Worthy. Kelly, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Thanks so much, Neil. It's my pleasure. So did you ever think you'd become a published author? We talked about the grind of becoming one. Everyone's dream to become a published author. And it's a challenge. And you, you were able to meet that challenge. Well, it's true. Well, I should say that there's a bit of history there that my father published 15 books in his lifetime. He was an English professor. So I always sort of knew that this was a thing that people <clears throat> did. But that also gave me this added sort of hurdle to clear of would it be good enough? So uh, you know, this this went through six iterations or so before it became its final version. And uh, but it's out. I couldn't be happier. And it's you know, it's been a great ride. All right. So, uh, Dave, I'll give you just a get, you can go ahead with a question just about why she wrote the book and then we'll go from there. Yeah, well, I was going to ask, uh, does it does it seem like a lot of people today feel unworthy? You know, I think of that scene and we're not worthy, you know, and. <laughs> It, I forgot the name of that movie. Uh, the two uh, time travelers. Bill and Ted. It was Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Bill and Ted. Thank yeah. you. Bill and Ted. Yeah. Yes. just doesn't work the way it used to. I can't figure that out. I think. I think particularly among women, there's often a sense that um, they feel less than capable with money, even if they, they may know more than they think they do. But they feel less than capable, and they feel less educated in when it comes to taking care of their money. So the idea behind you are worthy is to both dispel that notion that and and convince them that they are in fact worthy they they do have the potential to take care of their money and make their money serve them and that learning how is not all that hard. And that's and so that's true. Yeah, that's true. How. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true because again, money is just a dirty word for everyone and it, it breaks up relationships. It does certain things, even though we're driven by money. The only things we we're, we're, we're after in life is look good, have money and feel happy. And yet when it comes to saving, it doesn't feel good. When it comes to planning for money, it doesn't feel good. How do we kind of change that mindset 
uh, so that the future generations see how important it is to save money and prepare themselves for the future, especially with, you know, taxes are going to increase and the inflation of this world and all that. So uh, you're absolutely right that we have a lot of feelings associated with money. I did wind up serving 100 women as part of the research for my book. And when I asked them how they felt about money and what, how, what role money played in their lives, I heard stressed, anxiety, and love-hate as the most common responses. So you're absolutely right that money conjures up a lot of strong feelings. But one way, and you're also right, that if we are thinking about ourselves as only in the here and now, that saving and planning for the future and holding back today feels less than pleasant. The key is thinking about the idea that there's a future you out there as well. And that person needs tending just as you do today. And so when you save today, you're taking care of you tomorrow. I actually had a client say that to me. Her name was... Well, her name's disguised, but let's just say the Deborah today takes care of the Deborah tomorrow. And that's how she talked herself into saving. It's a, it's a worthwhile saying. Yeah, a lot of people bring in a lot of bad attitudes about money, you know, like you're not supposed to love it. But actually a very wise man once said, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money itself. Well, I think... My personal view is that money is, at the end of the day, a tool, like a bicycle or a screwdriver. It is a tool to help you live life the way you want. What's complicated about money is that, well, maybe this is true of a screwdriver, but it's certainly not true of a bicycle. A bicycle comes with a user's manual. Money, not so much. And so it's really luck of the draw as to whether we learn these things. And if we don't, and we feel that we haven't learned them because we're somehow not smart or not deserving, then that can start the emotional baggage piling up. If we believe in our own worth in this space, then we can build the skills. And we, we can see that we deserve to build the skills. And then we can use money to serve us. Because really, at the end of the day, money, it's, I wouldn't say it's at the root of all evil. It is at the root of a lot of uh, um, uh, evil events, I would say, wars and you know, conquests, but, um, but money at the end of the day, it's really just a tool. It's just a tool to help us live our lives. Yeah. And in all fairness, uh, men struggle with that as well. I mean, you know, just because there's some very highly educated men who can figure out the stock market and figure out how to multiply their money. I mean, not all of us are in that category. It's absolutely true that men struggle with this as well. I focus on women because it's a particular passion of mine to empower women, but it's absolutely true that not every woman feels bad about money or that every man feels good. There are certainly men who struggle in this space and feel less than capable as well. But the same things apply. If you can build that sense of self-worth and the fact, the idea that you deserve to be using this tool and that you're more than capable of using this tool, then you have the mindset that helps you learn how. Yeah, and so the the thought process is if you can teach people how to a lot of the stressors of relationships, relationships with family, relationships with a marriage, relationships with just making sure you don't earn a lot and living paycheck to paycheck and having enough for retirement is such a such an important thing. And in your book, you really kind of try to delve into this. Is there an ultimate goal that you want from this book? What is the what is the driver that you want people to learn by reading it? 
I want people to come away feeling that, and that's why I've structured it the way I did. The book has three parts. The first part is believe, the next part is learn, and the final part is build. So it's first believing in yourself, then learning the skills, and then building the plan. So I want people to come away feeling deserving, capable, knowledgeable, and focused. And then ultimately, that will help them feel hopeful and looking forward to the future. Yeah, there are a lot of myths about money that people need to get rid of, too, the way they were brought up. You know, I think of the author Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He talks about his his real dad, you know, was broke because he believed in, you know, a paycheck. And his rich dad believed that, he you know, you need to have assets that produce income. And so uh, do you find that a lot of people are just self-sabotaging themselves just because of the way they were raised and the uh, false notions about money that they have? I'm going to tell you something shocking that I learned in my research. I mentioned that I surveyed 100 plus women about their feelings about money and the effect of money on their lives. Of the 109 women I spoke to, 103 told me their beliefs about money were formed in childhood. And they're still walking around with those beliefs. So think about what that means. When we're kids, we're trying to understand this abstract thing. We don't really know what it is. So the only way we can get a clue to what it is is from the effect it has on the people around us. If and if our parents fight about money or act irresponsibly or struggle all the time, that's the message we get is that's what money does to you. And we carry that belief around in adulthood, even though we could be super capable of taking charge of it. Wow. And that is the number one cause of divorce as well. It's a key cause of divorce. And you'd be shocked how many couples don't talk about finances before they get married. They try to do it. And yet it's still not the truth belief system. I think that there has to be some real horror stories told of why marriages fail and look at money as a, as a big driver. Cause one person's the budgeter and the other person's the spender and that they don't want to hear from the budgeter and they see that or the one that once more and the other person, you really have to be a futurist before getting married, especially if you're talking about money. Because if you're not a futurist and see where everyone's going to go, it's going to be a complete uh, mistake. Now, you know, Kelly- be the uh, discussion on your second date, by the way. No, exactly. I think this needs to be, yeah, it needs to be discussion if right out the first bat before even getting on a date, uh, you know, Kelly, potatoes and I'm a saver, right? Yeah, exactly. And what is, what is your thought process? Are you planning for the future? Are you going looking after retirement? Are you doing certain things? How big is your 401k? So here's the tip, because again, people need to pick up your book, but Kelly, you again, because of the success you've had in your brand, meaning getting to be on big, big shows and being a published author, who do you, you know, being in this industry, what advice would you offer people to get to this point? Because there's so many people who love to be in your place right now, Kelly. A published author, been on, been recognized on some big platforms and big stages, how they too can do it. Because a lot of people who listen and watch my show have those aspirations to be that place. Mm-hmm. It's so lovely that you asked that um, because it's so great to share everybody's ideas around that. Uh, I would say the number one thing is you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that you have unique gifts and talents that the world needs to have and that you can provide a gift to the world. And if you think about it in those terms and can help you get past the insecurities and the bumps in the road that you will inevitably bump up against, be flexible, expect there to be changes, expect there to be the unexpected, um, expect that you may change course over time, but uh, trust yourself. As Dr. Spock said long, long ago, you know more than you think you do. 
And I'm sure you didn't, you weren't just an overnight success. You put a lot of work in to get to where you are today. I was what you call a 30 year overnight success. How's that? Uh, okay. <laughs> I worked really hard for 30 years. Well, congrats. So, and that's to talk thing. to you, Neil. <laughs> yeah, it's 13 years doing this, 13 years doing this as of December 6th, over 9,000 plus shows doing about 15 a week and help grow my agency now. I really look at it's not and, and, and I still want to grow and I still want to become better. And the thing is, you got to be driven in that way to be successful and put lots of hard work because people aren't seeing us, you know, Kelly, back when we started first year or second yeah. year and what we were dealing with and what we're doing and what we're doing today is not what we're going to be doing tomorrow with the future of everything. For sure. Dave, last, uh, Dave is a caregiver and he has a question about caregiving. Go ahead, Dave. Perfect. Yeah. So 25 years ago, my wife had a stroke. She lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. And during a two and a half year grieving period, which was a living hell, we almost broke up, but we hung in there. And for some reason, I found a support group to go to. I learned to put on my oxygen mask first and she slowly started responding, uh, becoming her old self again. Our love was rekindled. And now we reinvented ourselves. I'm Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. I help caregivers stay alive. 30% of them die before their loved ones do. I've written a book about it. It's your life to thrive and stay alive as a caregiver. And uh, another book, uh, Secrets from the Hammock, Uncommon Wisdom for Uncommon Times. And so now I'm putting on caregiver wellness retreats in Acapulco at a villa that I have access to. And it's a, it's a combination coaching program, and it also helps caregivers to get away from their loved one and relax and get some mastermind, get some support. My question to you, Kelly, is uh, how, how has caregiving touched your life? Whew. Well, I would say the biggest way is raising three children who've turned <laughs> into... Uh, well, one's still in college, but the other two are fully self-sufficient adults. And the, it doesn't we, stop when they're in college, by the way, as you know. <laughs> that, that is so true. Uh, I was, I would say, the primary point person when both my parents fell ill and declined and ultimately passed away. So that's that, that's where caregiving's come in. I would say, circling back to our original topic, money can support something as I'll call it sacred as caregiving. It's really, it can, it can make these things possible. And when you take care of this particular resource, it can enable you to be the best caregiver you can be. I love the idea of your retreat and uh, congratulations on coming full Thank circle. Thank you. Thank you. If you know anybody who needs that, send them my way. And uh, Dave, I think that this is going to be a big thing that you're developing and helping people for sure. Caregiverdave.com. Caregiverdave.com. But everyone knows they search Caregiver Dave. You're going to find you. Kelly, best place to purchase your book. Where can we go? You can find my book everywhere books are sold. Awesome. (laughs) I will have the link in all the descriptions. Make sure everyone goes out and checks out this book. And I recommend, and again, it's for just women, but if you're a, uh, you know, the, the nerd and you want your significant other to not stop spending and become better in financials buy Kelly's book. I appreciate it. Kelly daughter to become financial daughter daughter's even better. Yes. That's something you need to send out all great holiday gifts. Appreciate it. Kelly. Thank you guys. Thanks for stopping by. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. We'll be back in just a moment.